We're in Colossians 3 this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn that direction. Everybody have a good Christmas. I hope you got more sleep than I did. The littles were too excited. So Father, we come to your word this morning with reverence and expectation. Lord, we're thankful. Our hearts adore you. Holy Spirit, we sense your presence here this morning. We ask that you would minister, you would speak to our hearts. Transform us by the power of the Spirit. Transform us, Lord, like only you can do. Mold us into the image of Christ. Lord, may our lives bring you glory. We love you with all our hearts, all our strength, with all our minds, Lord, all our souls. We love you, Lord. You're our daily bread, our portion, our prize. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, we're returning to Colossians 3 today. We are, we are in the thick of um, practice. Okay, so the first couple chapters of Colossians are very much theology. And as we turn to the latter portion, we're in practicum. We're in practice and daily living. And so um, the theology obviously interacts with the practical living, but very much we're going to talk um, boots on the ground today from this from the Word of God. As I studied this week, I was reminded of uh, a dream that I had a couple years ago, and I think I've shared before, but I thought it would be valuable to share now. We believe that God still speaks to His people in dreams, though we believe that dreams are are don't carry the same authority as the Word of God. In other words, your dreams may be inspired by the Spirit, but only when those dreams are in line with the Word of God and should always be subject to the Word of God. Does that make sense? And so, as I share a dream, I'm not saying this is the same authority as the Word. I'm saying that I think that this was God speaking. This dream that I had a few years ago that I felt was from the Lord, I was doing a hospital visit um, and I was in the room, and as I walked to the hospital bed, there was a young boy whose hand was totally mangled, totally torn to pieces. And in the dream, um, I said something like, well, what happened here? You know, like you do in those situations. And the who I assumed in the dream was the grandmother locked eyes with me. And I knew in my, in my heart in that moment that I was supposed to pay attention. This was from the Lord. And... Um, when the grandmother locked eyes with me, she she told me that uh, there was an infection in the boy's hand and that she had to um, amputate before the infection continued uh, to spread and that it would have killed him. It was, it was spreading that quickly. And then she kind of caught my attention and she said, um, the mature in this hour have sharpened the mortician's knife. And I woke up immediately after she said that knowing what she meant um mortician are people who deal with the dead right um but the theologians of old used the word mortify a lot that, that's a theological term uh, the king james will use that term at times to mortify uh in romans uh chapter six the scripture says um if by the spirit you put to death the flesh then you will live and theologians of old John Owen in particular wrote a book called On the Mortification of Sin, and it was about putting to death the flesh. 
As I thought on the dream further, I realized that in the dream, the boy had lost his right hand. And there we find Jesus saying, um, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And as I meditated upon what I felt like the Spirit of the Lord was saying to me in this night, this night season, I felt like the Spirit of the Lord was saying that the church is coming to an hour where those who are mature in the faith and leaning into the faith will be those who are actively cutting off anything that causes them to dishonor the Lord. They'll sharpen the knife that chops off the thing that causes them to sin. When the scripture says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's referring to the word as the knife um, that's used in sacrifice, that chops up the sacrifice. And, and when we think of the word that way, the word discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, our motives. And we use the word as a tool to cut away from us everything that is not pleasing to the Lord. Christians, this is not popular teaching, but this is biblical teaching. The Puritans taught this thoroughly. Christians, because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ and his lordship, they actively kill sin. Christians actively put to death everything in them that dishonors the Lord. And there it's where we find uh, John Owen's famous quote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. All right, let's read Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to stumble into this, again, biblical theme of mortification, of putting to death the things that dishonor the Lord and how Christians should actively posture themselves. Chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put off the old self with its practices. Now, as we return to Colossians, remember that the, the thematic emphasis of the epistle uh, is essentially that the Colossian church should not bite, shouldn't, shouldn't receive uh, a false teaching that's been brought to them by heretical teachers. So the Colossian church is an early church, a young church, and they've got some some false prophets who have snuck in, are beginning to teach, and the emphasis of the whole text is essentially don't bite, don't, don't fall for this new teaching. You don't need spiritual enlightenment, you don't need to climb some, some ladder of spirituality. Uh, Paul says that you have all you need in Christ and in Christ alone. You don't need to submit to new regulations, you don't need to follow after these new super spiritual prophets, you have all all you need in Jesus. 
We said before, remember, it was Sinclair Ferguson who pointed out that what seemed to be the buzzword of this false teaching was fullness. So repetitively in our text to the Colossians, Paul's going to say things like, all of the fullness is in Christ. And so it seems that the false teachers were saying to this young church, if you want the fullness of spirituality, you need to submit to these new regulations. You need to come under our teaching. If you want the fullness and the heights of what it means to be a believer, you need to come and bow before our new, essentially Gnostic presentation. Remember again that the Gnostic presentation was that everything that is matter is evil and everything that is spiritual is good. And so if you want to climb the ladder of spirituality, you need to fast more, you need to sleep less, you need to deny yourself any sexual pleasure ever, and you need to punish your body. So the Gnostic teaching, this heresy seems to be that everything earthly, everything material is evil, and if you want to be super spiritual, just deny yourself of interaction with the matter, with matter. Now the biblical presentation is never that matter is our problem, right? God created and said it was good. The biblical presentation is that the problem with you is your rebellion, And so Paul is saying that our rebellion has been put to death in the waters of baptism. We've been raised to new life in Christ Jesus. There's no need to go down this road of trying to climb a spiritual ladder through performance. So as we approach this passage of Scripture, we find two negative commands, mainly put to death and put off, Each command is followed by a list of sins and then a reason why we should put off or put to death those sins. That's the basic layout of the text. Put to death, here's a list of sins. Put off, here's a list of sins. For Christ is all and in all. Remember again that Paul says in the previous text that they've been buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. So, working up to Colossians 3, Paul has told the church repetitively, you are dead to sin. You are crucified with Christ. You have, you have died a spiritual death. Now, as we turn to practice and pragmatics in the spiritual life, Paul says, put to death. And you could ask the question, well, which is it, Paul? Are we dead to sin or do we need to be putting death, putting sin to death? And the answer, Paul would say, was a yes. You are dead to sin, and you need to put to death sin. Chrysostom, a church father, says, uh, the early church father says, imagine a statue that's rusted um, and in bad shape, and someone comes and sands the thing down and restores the thing totally, right? Totally repaints, reputs together the statue. And then the man says, now make sure that you're cleaning the statue, that you're wiping the statue down, because if you just leave the thing out in the elements for another 300 years, you're going to find that it begins to rust again. In, in other words, you have been made totally new in Christ Jesus because of his sacrifice, his death and resurrection. You have new life. Now care for your new life. Does that make sense? You have new life. Now care for your soul. Don't submit your new life to death again. And so the first command is put to death that which is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity. It seems that 
uh, N.T. Wright points out, and it seems to be true, that the entire first list deals with sexual sin. Now, I don't know if you're perceptive enough to realize that our culture has a sex problem. Okay, we are highly over-sexualized. And when you begin to pay attention to, I'm going to be a little bit uh, maybe offensive here, but I like doing that, so get used to that. Um, when you really get into um, progressivism and much of a liberal thrust underneath all of that is really just free sex. It's still free sex. It's still, you should be able to have sex with whoever you want to have sex with, whenever you want to have sex with them, and there should be no consequences. And um, obviously that's where abortion has its roots. The God, God's design, which is beautiful, is that when a man and woman consummate their vows, their covenant to one another, they conceive children and they raise children in their home. Okay, God's design, it's a beautiful design. Sociologists step outside of the theological world and the commands of scripture and just look at practice for a second. Sociologists, anyone who studies this tells us best case scenario for kids, two parents. What is the greatest issue, one of the greatest issues in our nation today? Fatherlessness. And for some reason, we pat men on the back who are pro-choice, and we say, you're fighting for women. Maybe they're fighting for sex without consequences. And so what's under that, what's under the sexual revolution, what's under the gender conversations, it's all about me being able to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with whenever I want to have sex. And you're not allowed to say anything to me that contradicts my physical desires. If I say to you, having sex outside of marriage is sin, somehow I'm slandering or hateful, right? Like to have a morality that's opposed to the modern progressive morality is somehow hateful. Even though we're very aware that what's healthy for children and society is man and woman in the covenant of marriage raising their children Paul's day wasn't much different, and I often laugh at those who say that when we talk about um, issues of um, same-sex relationships, those who say that, oh, we know more about homosexuality today than than the scriptures knew, or that somehow we're in a different social setting. It's not true at all. Greco-Roman world was filled with all kinds of sexuality. Like, read a couple books, man. You'll find that out real quick. Um, and so the idea that we're more modern than the Greco-Roman world as it pertains to sexuality, therefore we have a new sexual ethic, is what I would call stupid. Okay? Um, it's not true at all. And so when Paul writes to the Greco-Roman world, he begins to talk to the church at Colossae about their sin as it pertains to sex. Okay, and what it seems like the heretics are saying to them, the false teachers are saying to them, is if you are struggling with Sin. if you have struggles in your life, if you're not soaring spiritually, then what you should do is you should fast, you should sleep outside in the cold, you should live in the desert alone. If you would stop eating good food, then you would have the spiritual strength to conquer your sexual sin. Paul says, no. If you're dealing with sexual sin, deal with your sexual sin. If you're struggling, men in the room, with pornography... If you're struggling with lust, 
the whole first list there primarily is talking about sexual desire. Paul says what you should do is put that to death. Not jump through hoops, not go to a million conferences, not roll on the ground and try some new spiritual formula. Attack the core of the problem. What Jesus means when he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut off your right hand. Deal with the sin problem. So mortification, biblically speaking, the Christian perspective of how we deal with sexual sin is never jump through some hoops, climb some spiritual ladder, find yourself as the the super anointed one because you figured out some formula. Christian maturity comes as you sharpen the knife and get serious about cutting off your sin. What do we mean by that? What is the Christian, Christian teaching concerning cutting off the thing that nourishes your sin? Christianity never creates new legalistic laws. And so, so when you talk about the, the laws of the Old Testament, what the Jewish community did was they created fences around the laws and then fences around the fences so that they would never break the law. So what started as dietary restrictions turns into, um, never let your meat and cheese touch, right? Like that's not in the, that's not in the old covenant. Um, what started as honor the Sabbath day with rest turns into things like if you open the refrigerator door and the light comes on, then you've, you've broken the rule. Well, Judaism did that. It, it created fences around laws. Christianity never does that. Although Christianity does have plain moral instruction. Jesus commands us to live sexually pure lives. If you've got a problem with that, you don't have a problem with me. If you've embraced a progressive liberal ideology that says I should be able to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with and I'm somehow shaming you by telling you you shouldn't, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with Jesus. Okay, Jesus teaches a moral ethic concerning sexuality. The the biblical command is never to take that moral ethic, which is sex is appropriate between man and woman in the context of marriage. It's not to then draw fences around it. And to say, well, men should never work with a woman who's not his wife. Because if he works with a woman who's not his wife, he might lust. We don't draw fences like men should, should never um, have a conversation with a woman who's not his wife. Because that could promote some kind of immoral, immoral relationship. No, that's not the right response. Christian response. The Christian response is we don't draw fences around laws to create in our community these kind of legalistic hoops, the Christian response is individual men and individual women who have problems with sex, with lust, the Christian response is you need to deal with your problem. Men in the room, if you have a problem with pornography, the Christian teaching is you need to deal with the pornography problem. Now, you could come with a hundred excuses. You were exposed to pornography at a young age. Your father slept around and so it's all you've ever known to have an affair on your wife. And I say to you, you are, you, if you are a Christian, the, the most important historical fact of your life is not what your father did to you. It's, it's being baptized into the waters 
and being raised again in new life. You say, you don't know my story. No, I'm, if you're a Christian, I know your story very well. The most significant thing that has happened to you is coming to Christ. And you need to live from that historical fact. Now, what do you do if you have a pornography problem? Well, some would say Christians should never have TVs in their home. And I would say, should Christians have TVs in their home? Sure. Should Christians with pornography problems have TVs in their home? Probably not. Can Christians have the internet? Sure. No problem. Should Christian men who are looking at pornography at night using the internet have the internet? No. That's what it means to cut off the thing that's causing you to sin. Should Christians listen to secular music? Sure. Should Christian men and women who struggle with sexual immorality continue to listen to music that is totally explicit in nature? No. You should turn that off. Paul is saying, if you're dealing with sexual sin, don't deny yourself sleep. Don't stop eating meat. Get rid of the smartphone. And listen to me, your allegiance to Jesus has got to, has got to supersede and rise above your allegiance to modern technological culture. Like, who cares if you have a smartphone or not? If men in the room, women in the room, statistics say, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I'm right, that, that, uh, up to a third of women today struggle with pornography. Um, so, so if you are dealing with that kind of sexual sin, and, and it's going to assault your marriage. Men in the room, I'm just going to shoot straight for a second. You got kids, your daughters, your sons, find your pornography. What is that going to do to their, their perspective of you? Pornography in every, on, on every front, it um, damages your, your basic psychological functions. You're participating in a... Um, a, a, a business, you're pr- participating in a field where some statistics say that over 90% of the women who are participating in pornography have been molested or raped in their adolescent years. And so you're furthering that and you justify it on what? I've got to have a smartphone because everyone else has a smartphone. Everyone has the internet. Why can't I have the internet? Well, not everyone has a pornography problem. Biblically speaking, you have to deal with your sin. And I have to deal with my sin. And that means attacking anything that is promoting that sin in my life. Can Christians have a beer? Sure. Can Christian men who struggle with alcoholism have a beer? Probably not. The principle lies all throughout scripture. Your allegiance to Christ has to supersede your sexual desires. Otherwise, you have a major problem. And I'm sorry that Christian pastors and ministers just keep telling you how great you are. I'm sorry that that's all that's happened in the church. And I'm told if I talk about this, you're going to leave and never come back. I don't know if you know me, but I'm going to say what I want to say. You are dishonoring your Lord, men and women. If you're in an affair this morning, you are dishonoring Jesus. It is outright rebellion to our Lord. 
you are destroying your family, your future family. Maybe young men, you say, I don't have a family. Well, you're, you're setting yourself up on a, on a bad track there. You are promoting an industry that dishonors women who are created in God's image and men. What is the Christian response? Not don't eat meat. The Christian response is get rid of it. You need to learn basic wisdom which says in moments of strength, in moments where I'm strong, I cut the internet off so that I don't look at something in moments that I'm weak. Does this make sense? You prepare for war in times of peace. That means today, I give you permission to leave here, go down to the T-Mobile, and get you a dumb phone. And as Christians, that's not something we belittle people for. That's something we honor people for. When I see a man with a dumb phone, I say, that's probably a man of God. And so, not, not tooting my own horn here because I've had to, we all wrestle with these things in our Christian life. But for me right now, there's no socials on my phone. That's perfectly appropriate to not have social media on your phone. Why? Because my allegiance to Christ Jesus is all I have. All my life is. All my life can be. All it can be is love for Jesus. Therefore, I will kill anything that attempts to belittle him. Paul says, put it to death. And again, our modern pulpits say, you're great. Paul says, you need to die. Crucifixion. Pick up your cross. I think that there is becoming a sharp distinction in the church today. There's, there is developing quite, quite a line between those who really believe Jesus Christ is their Lord and lover and, and chief prize and those who have embraced some form of Christianity because it is socially acceptable and will use Christianity to promote their concept that anyone who offends you is somehow not loving. And what lies between that distinction largely has to do with sex. Does your sexual life honor God or not? That's for you to answer. It's for me to answer. I'm telling you, as Christians, you better get it right. Put it to death, Paul says. Second thing Paul says is put away. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This entire list seems to be dealing with anger, frustration. And Paul is saying, put it off. Take off that old person and put on your Christian garments. Christians are called to be peacemakers. Christians are called to carry the atmosphere of heaven, to know Christ, to walk with Christ, and to not grieve the Spirit. Furthermore, men... If you are leading your homes with fear, if you're having fits of rage where you throw things, where you curse at your wife or your kids, you are in sin. And there's nothing masculine about that. You hear me? If, if, if you throw these little temper tantrums because you've had a long day at work and now you need to let that out on your family, you are in disobedience to Christ Jesus, your Lord. And you need to deal with it. 
the way that men speak to their families is either worship or sin, one or the other. And so I, I try to keep that in my mind. The way I speak to my wife is worship. I don't belittle that little woman. She's little, but I don't belittle her. I try my best not to. To my children, they're created in God's image. Yes, there's a time to be firm. There's no doubt about that. But if I, I, I do everything I can, not to, I'm not using profanity in my home. I'm not throwing stuff in my home. And, and I would challenge any man in the room, if that's the way you treat your family, we need to have a talk. It's not respectful. It's not godly. I don't care what generation you grew up in. I don't care how your daddy treated you. You have a responsibility to reflect Christ in your home. Yes, firmness is appropriate, absolutely. But firmness yoked with holiness is not holy. Women in the room, if your home is filled with bitterness and gossip, if you're catty and you're, and you're nitpicking and you always want to talk about somebody, you need to stop. You need to put it to death. You got, you got that one girlfriend who keeps calling because she wants to spill the tea. I would cut that friendship off. It dishonors Jesus. There's nothing funny about it. There's nothing lighthearted about gossip. There's nothing holy about nitpicking people and belittling others. Nothing holy about saying you're going to pray for somebody, so you need to talk about all their problems. Why don't you just talk to God about it, okay? You guys hear what I'm saying? The biblical perspective is that you are to put to death those attitudes. Those are things unbelievers do. Those are things that participate in the kingdom of darkness. Those are not things that we as Christians do. And when we see rampant anger in other men in the church, in Christ's church, it's our responsibility to confront it. Men and women, when we see sexual immorality in the church, we don't say, go fulfill your desires, man. You want to have sex with that person? You go for it. What are the consequences? If you get pregnant, just kill the baby. No. We say, put it to death. Your personal desires are not king. Your personal desires are not what creates the standard of the church. What's king to the church? Honoring Jesus, loving Jesus, serving Jesus. It's his way or the highway. You are not your own Lord. And if you are, we should go back to Christianity 101. Now you feel like you're getting a spanking today, huh? Nice Christmas service, Caleb. Um, It's over. That was yesterday. Get over it. Get over it. So to, to tie it, I know I'm being sharp, but to tie it, Paul is saying to the Colossian church, I know that those false teachers came and told you that if you would fast more and if you would act more spiritual, if you would lay on the ground and hum and roll, if you would deny yourself sleep, I know they told you if you did those things, then you could be super spiritual. I'm telling you that what you should do is kill your sin. I'm telling you that what you should do is cut off the things that are promoting your sexual immorality, that are promoting your anger. What I'm telling you to do is get serious about your faith and about loving Jesus. Then you'll find Christian maturity. The mature church says, Christ is Lord. Everything that dishonors him, we will cut off. The mature church says, allegiance to Jesus is all we have. It's all we want. It's all we live for. 
we will not participate in any activity that spits on him. And Paul concludes by telling us that no ethnicity has an advantage. He says, Greek, Drew, Greek, Jew, Scythian, slave, free, no, no, no socioeconomic class has an advantage. Because your mama was a Christian, you don't have an advantage. Your grandmama was a, a Christian, your granddaddy was a pastor, there's no advantage. That all must bow to Christ, and that Christ will fill all who bow to him. So to tie it up, is Paul saying that we should create a bunch of fences around the rule? No, he's saying that you individually should steward your own heart. You individually are responsible for your own life. Paul is saying, don't patty cake your sin. Stop making excuses. Stop giving life stories about who did this to you and created this pattern. I get that. I understand patterns. But by God, the cross breaks every pattern. And the blood of Jesus heals all disease, sets us free from sin. What is Christian maturity? Total allegiance to Jesus. Total allegiance to Jesus. Seth, come for us. We'll get ready to close. Come out of your your bat cave over there. You want to go ahead and stand to your feet. This passage of scripture is inviting you to love Jesus more. This passage of scripture invites you to love Jesus fully. This passage of scripture invites you to stop living double lives and to die. Let's worship just for a moment.